Hi, welcome to another podcast of the Apologist Bookshelf. I want to take a look at a book by Tim Keller called Counterfeit Gods. I'll tell you, anything that Tim Keller puts out is worth reading. Uh, you probably know his story that uh, he was a pastor in Virginia, and then he started a church in Manhattan. I mean, of all places, Manhattan. You'd think uh, New Yorkers are about as secular as it gets, and they would have no interest in anything to do with Jesus or the Christian faith. But in 1989, he started Redeemer Presbyterian Church, and now it's got, I don't know, I've heard something like over 5,000 regular attendees, and then they've started new churches all over the place. He wrote a book called The Reason for God, and I love that one, and um, The Prodigal God and some others. Tim passed away last year, and uh, Christianity lost a really wonderful speaker, a theologian, a communicator of the truth of Christianity. But he did it in a very interesting way. I mean, he knew his society. He knew culture. He knew uh, some of the best names as far as literature and philosophy went. So he was quite a guy. He could draw in so many good resources. The book I wanted to look at is called Counterfeit Gods. And it's a, it's a small book. Let's see. It's uh, just about 200 pages, small size, easy to read. And um, he, the subtitle tells you pretty much what's going on here. I mean, look, the, the title says Counterfeit Gods. And the subtitle says The Empty Promises of Money, Sex, and Power, and the Only Hope That Matters. And you can tell from his chapter titles what he's covering here. Uh, one is called Love Is Not All You Need. Of course, that's kind of a takeoff of the Beatles. Money changes everything. The seduction of success, the power and the glory, the hidden idols in our lives. And so what I wanted to do today, I really want to come back to this book many times, but for this time, let's do the introduction, and it's called The Idol Factory. And he quotes from Nietzsche. Like I said, he's really uh, he knows his philosophers. Here's the quote from Nietzsche. There are more idols in the world than there are realities. Think about that one for just a minute. There are more idols in the world than there are realities. We dream up and we idolize more than what we face in the real world. Um, he starts with de Tocqueville. And again, that really uh, amazes me that he knows some history of America and some of the famous authors who talked about America. In the 1830s, de Tocqueville came to America and he observed it and wrote his book, and he said that he saw a strange melancholy that haunts the inhabitants in the midst of abundance. Why? He said, well, Americans believed that if they just had money, if they just had prosperity, that would quench all of their yearnings for happiness and uh, the good life. And he said, but that hope was illusory. He says, the incomplete joys of this world will never satisfy the human heart. Isn't that interesting? That's to Tocqueville over well, almost 200 years ago. He says, the incomplete joys of this world will never satisfy the human heart. And he said, people, he, I'm back to Keller again. He says, it's a strange melancholy that we all have. It leads to despair. And we are looking for something. We're seeking everywhere and we're not finding it. And so he says, what is this strange melancholy? He said, even during all this wonderful uh, productivity and our activity and all this prosperity in this country, he said, even during these boom times, we end up with a melancholy. Well, he goes back to de Tocqueville. De Tocqueville said that it came from taking some incomplete joy of the world and then building your entire life on it. He says that's idolatry. So that's worth mentioning again, to take an incomplete joy of the world and build your whole life on it. Now think about that. Building 
our life on an incomplete joy. In other words, it's a good thing. It's not a bad thing, but we put all of our eggs in that basket. We think about that all the time, and we build our whole life on that, and it doesn't satisfy, and that's idolatry. And he talks about, okay, so that was a long time ago, and he said, you go back, the Greco-Roman world, and everybody had their deities and their idols and their shrines, and he said, our contemporary society is really not that much different from the ancient ones. Um, each culture had its own set of idols. Each had its rituals, it had its priesthood, it had its shrines. He said, shrines? He said, yeah. Uh, office towers, spas, gyms, studios, stadiums. He said, what are the gods of beauty, power, money, and achievement, but the same things that have had uh, all sorts of mythic proportions in our own lives? He said, maybe we don't kneel before the statue of Aphrodite, like they may have done in the ancient days. But he says, look what happens. Young women today are driven into depression and all sorts of eating disorders by being obsessively concerned about their body image. He says, well, we may not really burn incense to Artemis, but he says when money and career are raised to just cosmic proportions, we do perform a kind of child sacrifice. How is that? He says, well, we neglect family, we neglect community because we're trying to get up higher in business, gain more wealth, gain more prestige, have a name on that office door, have a name on the outside of the building. Yeah, he said, uh, that's interesting that I, I think he's really onto something there that we look down at these people that had these idols and we go, ha, huh, how, how much more progressive we are these days. No, not really. He said, in ancient times, the deities were bloodthirsty and hard to appease. He says, they still are. By the way, I really like that. That's, um, as an English teacher, I like what he's done in those two sentences. He took this lengthier sentence and then just a three word sentence that has a lot of punch. It's like the punchline of a joke. So let me read those two sentences again. In ancient times, the deities were bloodthirsty and hard to appease, period. They still are. Doesn't that have some power, the way he said that? So uh, Keller is really good at his own writing style as well as his insights. So he says, what are some of these idols? Let's talk about them for just a minute. He says, well, money can be like a spiritual addiction. And he said, it kind of hides what it can do to us. He says, the Bible says the human heart is an idol factory. And he said, yeah, but people think of idols. They've got these ideas of like literal statues or a pop star. And he said, well, he said, yeah, he said, you do get traditional idol worship around the world, but internal idol worship is universal internally. How we think and what we put our minds to, he said, that inside our heart, he said, that's universal. He quotes Ezekiel 14, verse 3. God says about these elders of Israel, these men have set up their idols in their hearts. And they said, we've done the same thing. What idols? People would say, well, what do you mean idols? I don't see any idols. But Keller says God was saying the human heart takes good things, like maybe a good career or love or material possessions, even family, and they get turned into ultimate things. They become the center of our lives because we all think that that's where we get our security. That's where we get our fulfillment, if we just attain them. But he said, you know, more and more things can become idols. Uh, bad news is that we're so fixated, for example, on greed. He said, we tend to say, oh, those rich people over there. He said, we don't realize anything can be an idol. It's not just greed. It's not just chasing the almighty dollar. Anything and everything has become an idol. He says, what it is, it's a God alternative. That's a counterfeit God. Anything in life can be that. He says, so what's an idol? 
Just anything that becomes more important to you than God, anything that takes your heart and absorbs your interest and your imagination, anything that you seek that thing to give you what only God can give, that's an idol. So a counterfeit God, he says, is anything that just becomes essential to your life that if you lose it, ah, you feel like your life would hardly be worth living. Uh, an idol has such a position in your heart that you spend so much of your time and your money and your passion and your energy, you spend all of it on that without a second thought. And he said it could be money, sure, but it could be family, it could be children, career, achievement, critical acclaim, saving face, having social standing, maybe a romantic relationship, peer approval, competence and skill, beauty or brains, a political cause. See, all those things are really good things. But when we put them in the place of God, that's where the problem comes. He said anything can be a God that becomes a deity in our hearts, in the lives of people. There are personal idols like romantic love, and family or money and power. There are cultural idols like military power, maybe technological progress, economic prosperity. He said there can be intellectual idols, sometimes called ideologies. So things that you latch onto, like Rousseau back in the uh, 19th century, uh, talking about his view of the innate goodness of human nature. We've, we've, we've latched ourselves onto a lot of these philosophies that have proven inept and haven't produce the wonderful world that we thought they would. I mean, just think right now, we're going through this thing on critical race theory, and people are getting on board with that, and they're spending their total lives and energy and thoughts directed toward this. It's going to make a wonderful society. No, not true. Um, so let's go back to this thing he's talking about here, the Rousseau view that everybody was okay on the inside. And then where did our problems come from? Just poor education and social socialization. He said, you know what destroyed that view? That we were okay. It was just outside circumstances that ruined us. World War II, he says, shattered that illusion. And he mentions this woman, Beatrice Webb, and I'd never heard of her. And again, I'm just pointing out how well-read Keller is, and he draws from so many different fields. Well, Beatrice Webb was the architect of Britain's modern welfare state. And here's what Webb had to say. She says, somewhere around 1890, that she wrote this, I have staked all on the essential goodness of human nature. And then she says, 35 years later, she realizes how permanent, these are the, her quoting words, how permanent are the evil impulses and instincts in man, how little you can count on changing some of these, like the appeal of wealth and power by any change in the social machinery. No amount of knowledge or science will be of any avail unless we can curb the bad impulse. Isn't that interesting? So no matter how much you educate somebody, no matter how much science is around, we're hurt, we're, we're broken people on the inside, and we can't curb that bad impulse. And she realizes that's exactly what's happening. Uh, how about H.G. Wells? He mentions H.G. Wells. He wrote a book called The Outline of History in 1920. He was big on human progress. Of course, we think of Wells as a science fiction writer, you know, the time machine, War of the Worlds. But he was a, an amazing historian, total atheist, and he praised the belief of human progress. And uh, in 1933, he wrote something called The Shape of Things to Come, and he thought the only hope was for intellectuals to get control of the educational program and, and set up you know, peace and justice and equity in the classrooms. And in 1945, just to show you his progress, he wrote A Mind at the End of Its Tether. Do you notice that title? Here's what uh, Wells had to say then. 
Homo sapiens, as he's been pleased to call himself, is played out. In other words, he ran out of enthusiasm for the, the humans as being able to be progressive individuals. He said, do you see what happened there? These people like Webb and Wells, they took a partial truth and they made it the whole truth that you could explain everything and this was going to solve all the problems. And he said, you know, if you stake everything on human goodness, you've put that in the place of God. He said, there are idols all over the place, every vocational field. You've got, like in the business world, you know, you've got value, you've got profit in the art world. Uh, everything is a sacrifice to self-expression in the name of redemption. There are idols everywhere. He's pointing out again and again. He says the Bible uses three metaphors to talk about these idols. He said people love idols, they trust idols, and they obey idols. And he points out, well, if we're going to love something, God should be our true spouse. But if we delight in something more than God, we're committing spiritual adultery. Ouch. Um, he says, just look at your unyielding emotions. What, what makes you the most angry or the most despondent? What gives you guilt? He said, idols control us because we feel like we've got to have them or life is meaningless. He said, many people today are saying they have psychological problems, but he said, that's often idolatry. Things like perfectionism, workaholism, chronic indecisiveness, trying to control other people. He said, what we're doing is making good things into idols and those things drive us in the ground when we try to appease them. These idols dominate our lives. I just think that's really powerful to, to hear things like that. And then toward the end of the chapter here, he is his opener. He says, you know, the global economy is, is a mess. And he wrote this when there was that crash in 08 and 09. But I would say even today you look around and things seem to be just so chaotic. And he says, with the global economy in shambles, Many of those idols that we've been worshiping for years have crashed down around us. Oh, amen to that. We put our faith in politics. What have we had? People have uh, just disappointed us over and over. You know, I always feel bad whenever there's a new president inaugurated. I'm old enough now that I've seen this inauguration happen again and again and again. People come in and they put their hands on the Bible and they swear to defend it. And then they give this talk about what their goals are, how they see the, the, the America of their dreams over the next four to eight years when they're president, and what happens? They start in with a pretty high level, most of them, with a high level of support and popularity. What's that like after two or three years? It crashes. They can't produce all the things they would love to produce. And so people that, that idolize the politician, people that idolize political plans, people that idolize their future, if they just had this job, if they just had this spouse, if they just had these children, you know, everything would be wonderful. But all these things we've worshipped have come crashing down around us. We've recently gone through the COVID thing. Well, we thought science and uh, technology were making us safer and safer. And then something like this just broke through and made us realize we're just a few seconds from death. And so one more time, he's just saying these things that we've idolized, we've worshipped, they come crashing down around us. But he said, you know, this is a great opportunity. He says, what we're experiencing, he calls disenchantment. So he says, think about old stories. If there is a spell that got cast by an evil sorcerer, disenchantment would break that spell. And then there's a chance to escape. And he said, we can do that. He said, times come to us as individuals. And if we have something that, that dashes our hopes, that we thought was going to be good, he says there's a way forward. 
He says, the only way to free ourselves from the destructive influence of counterfeit gods is to turn back to the true God. And we know where he's going with that one. The living God, he said, who revealed himself at Sinai and on the cross is the only Lord, he says, who can, if you find him, he can truly fulfill you. And if you fail him, he can truly forgive you. And I just think that's a powerful sentence. Let me read the whole sentence. This is how he concludes his intro. The living God who revealed himself both at Mount Sinai and on the cross, is the only Lord who, if you find him, can truly fulfill you, and if you fail him, can truly forgive you. So that's a wonderful way to end uh, this podcast. I'll let Tim Keller have the last words there. Thank you for joining me. Let's do another podcast soon.